Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, September 7, means it's episode number 90. Well, just ahead, Match tells us how dating and sex have changed during the pandemic. And is El Salvador's cryptocurrency experiment already a failure on day one? We'll look at the first country to use Bitcoin as its currency. And that sell-off after El Salvador's problems with Bitcoin led to a big drop in the shares of Marathon Digital. We're going to talk to that a controversial Bitcoin miner, Marathon Digital, with its CEO, Fred Thiel. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And one of the many ways you can listen to the Drill Down podcast is on Audible. You can open the Audible app and look at all the podcasts they've got on there, including this one, which we're quite fond of. And hey, you can click subscribe and follow us to catch every show on Audible, every episode of The Drill Down. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Br- so you visit- spell this one. Go ahead. Visit, visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn good. more. Very good. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We'll explain the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. And we have the three most important developments in the world of business today with Isaac Webster, our executive producer. Uh, Corey, let's start with Intel. Intel is planning to invest up to $95 billion in European chip making amid the U.S. expansion. Semi- the semiconductor maker pledges to dedicate production capacity in its Ireland facility to car chips to help mitigate shortages in that industry. Intel Chief Executive Pat Gelsinger made this announcement at an auto, auto industry event in Munich today. Number two, aluminum prices rising to their highest level in 10 years after a military coup in mineral rush Guinea threatened to snarl the lightweight metal supply chain. The army, the Guinea army, Ghanaian army reopened the country's land and air borders on Monday after closing them in the immediate aftermath of this coup. Yeah, big speculation in, in the price of uh, globally. Now, most of the aluminum that comes from Guinea goes to China, but of course, they got to go buy it somewhere else that's going to raise prices across the world. And now to El Salvador. El Salvador became the first country to adopt Bitcoin as its national currency. The government is rolling out Bitcoin ATMs and e-wallet and stylish kiosks all over the country. But the launch got off to a bumpy start when the government took its Bitcoin e-wallet offline for several hours to scale up servers to cope with demand as tens of thousands of people sought to download the app. Now, it's called Chivo. Chivo is the local slang for cool and is the government-run e-wallet. And still today, Bitcoin's value did fall as much as 17%. Even as El Salvador is out there buying Bitcoin, um, 
uh, by some estimates, 400 Bitcoins, which are about $21 million. Um, but uh, they're, they're signing up for a different kind of volatility, uh, but maybe a, a global standard in Bitcoin that where that volatility is shared by the rest of the world, not just by El Salvador and its currency trading partners. Corey, what stocks you're drilling down on today? Well, let's go back to DigitalOcean. Recent guest here on the drill down. Remember when we had Yancey Sproul on just two oh, weeks yeah. ago? I remember it well. DigitalOcean shares trade under DOCN. Shares fell today. What's going on with DigitalOcean? Just a little bit. But since they were on the show, since the company's CEO was on the show just two weeks ago, the stock's up 27%. On Friday alone, the stock was up 14%. So somebody's out there buying these shares. And uh, there's no specific news in the company other than, you know, what they're doing and how well they're doing it. We got into that in episode 80 two weeks ago. And again, this is a company, if you missed that episode, I suggest you go back and listen to it. I'm about to play a little segment of it. But essentially, this company does what Amazon Web Services does or what Microsoft Azure does, what Google does. They, they host the content for companies, but they're focused on startups as customers. And they try to provide those startups with things they can't get with AWS. Um, they give them customer service regardless of the level in which they spend money. They get the same customer service as everybody else. They're really focused on startups by giving them a community of other startups to talk to and indeed providing thousands of articles and, and documents to help them understand how to use the services offered by DigitalOcean. Here is, for the first time ever, Isaac, a soundbite from the drill down. Most recent interview that the CEO Yancey Spruill has done talking about really why their core of their ethos of their business is helping new companies test their ideas. Core to our ethos is helping those people test their ideas uh, and get them into the cloud and into the internet and build a business. You know, we like to say test an idea, build a business and realize their dreams. And key to that is not just the core technology, but we have a lot of 35,000 and growing documentation tutorials. People come to our platform to learn how to code. As their business grows and evolves, things change, different technologies they need to integrate. And we write a lot of tutorials uh, about that. We also offer support to our customers. So unlike a lot of people in this cloud uh, space, we don't differentiate the support. You know, you have to pay above a certain amount. Everybody can talk to uh, and get a human interaction on the support side. So we really create this business that helps remove barriers and friction that traditional technology solutions have put in the way of early stage uh, technology businesses. So we're trying to remove that friction and be force multipliers for them so they can test, build, scale a business uh, on uh, DigitalOcean. So it looks like uh, somebody else in Wall Street is starting to figure out that that's happening over there and bid up the shares. But again, a fascinating business. I encourage you to get back to episode 80 of The Drill Down and check that out if you didn't hear it the first time around. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Match Group. I'm all Match about online dating. Come on. I know you are. Match Group trades under MTCH. Shares rose 7% today, and they've gained 56% in a year. What's new with Match Group? Well, Match is one of two companies we're going to look at today whose, whose shares are up a lot because they're being added to the S&P 500. And uh, that causes some stupid Wall Street stuff for people that weren't interested before that go out and buy the shares anyway. But I thought it was an interesting time to take a look at this world that actually doesn't interest me that much, but is the world of online dating, particularly during uh, the pandemic. You know, what did online dating mean? Well, it meant that people were home and couldn't go out on actual dates. 
So maybe they couldn't close the deal so much, but uh, there have been some studies. We saw close some good numbers. the deal. What do you mean by that, Corey? You mean meet the person. Okay. Shake their hand. Maybe get a kiss or something that mm-hmm. happens when people date. Okay. And all that other stuff. And speaking of other stuff, Bumble tells us what some of that other stuff was. So Bumble did a survey of people. They published this in June and obviously a lot's going on in the last couple of months, but they found that more than 40% of the Bumble community surveyed saw that their approach to sex in 2021 had differed, uh, which again matters a lot to their business. One in five, 20%, saying they had engaged in virtual intimacy, which could mean sending a suggestive text or photograph or more. Um, many in the community said that they're, uh, they plan to express their sexuality different, but also about 22%, 14 reporting a change in their sexual preference. I don't know what that means. But, Maybe they're expanding their preferences. Who knows? Yes, uh, it sounds like it, or at least changing them. Um, and finally, uh, and importantly, uh, even back in June before Delta had raised its uh, the impact of its ugly head, 30% said vaccination was essential. If you wanted to go out with someone and bumble, you better have a date. Better have a, you, in order to get the date, you better have a date for a vaccination or have already had that vaccination or you won't even get that date at all. So we look at Match then and think, what does it mean and what's more current now? What do we know? So the last Match conference call when the CEO, uh, Sharmisha Duby, was talking about how do they study this impact of Delta on their business? And what she said was that they it, that it's not so much about the cases and the number of cases and the deaths. It's really about mobility. And so they found themselves tracking mobility rather than tracking the Delta outbreaks themselves and how can they measure mobility. So really interesting comments. I find that um, Sharmisha uh, is really interesting and she's very kind to start every sentence by wishing me a good morning. I think it's so nice of her. Here she is talking about Delta case surges and mobility masks and wishing me a a happy morning. Morning, Corey. Yeah, about the Delta and case surges. So one of the things to note is more than case surges itself, we're actually watching uh, mobility trends and restrictions more closely because they seem to have a a larger uh, effect. As, um, you know, as vaccination rates gain steam first in the U.S. and then in Europe, we saw mobility increase and it reflected in our uh, business trends in Q2. In um, in a few, in actually uh, several markets in Asia, um, even today, including Japan, which is our second largest revenue market, there are different different degrees of lockdowns and restrictions in place, and that certainly impacts mobility and our metrics. With respect to you know what, what's going on in the U.S. with the Delta surges in recent weeks, so far they don't appear to have any impact on mobility. And they may not unless uh, real restrictions are put in place. And generally, we don't see mask mandates as causing, um, you know, mobility restrictions. Mostly partial and full lockdown seem to. So, for instance, in UK, uh, where the Delta surged and it has already peaked and it's on its way down, uh, because restrictions were using uh, easing during this period, uh, mobility kept increasing, and we didn't really see much impact to our metrics here. So that's kind of how we think about what's going on um, in the market today. So I thought that was super interesting, Isaac. I mean, there's a really different look at the the economic impact of Delta variant um, and, and how it's affecting business and which businesses will be affected. 
Corey, what is your next drill down? Company owner looked at before today, Tandem Diabetes Care. Tandem Diabetes Care trades under TNDM. Shares rose 13% today and they've gained 22% in a year. So tell me, I'm assuming they work on diabetes. Indeed. Okay. With a name like Tandem Diabetes Care, why wouldn't they? Well, you um, never know. It were, maybe they started off selling cheeseburgers, but you know, with that <laughs> name, they kind of had to change the business yeah. to something else. Um, so Tandem Di- Diabetes Care also getting added to the S&P 500. You mentioned the big move in the stock today. Uh, this company makes insulin pumps, and um, they make some kind of innovative insulin pumps, particularly one that they call Control IQ. And um, they are seeing a movement in their business expanding from type 1 diabetes, where they've done a lot of business, to type 2 diabetes. And sadly, cases of diabetes in the U.S. in particular are, well, and, and in the third world are increasing significantly. This company, while the stock, as you mentioned, hasn't done much in the last year, revenues are up 500% in the last four years. And diabetes uh, increasing everywhere, children under 18 internationally, uh, 34 million Americans have diabetes. That's about 11% of the U.S. population, according to the CDC. Um, every 17 seconds, they get a potential customer because sadly, Every 17 seconds, an American is diagnosed with diabetes, one and a half million new cases every year. So CEO John Sheridan, uh, speaking at a recent financial conference, kind of talked for a 30,000-foot view of what's really driving their business and how COVID, how COVID has changed the trajectory of their growth, both going into COVID, coming out of COVID, and now going into uh, the big effects of, of the Delta variant. Here's CEO John Sheridan. This year has more and more people have been vaccinated. We have seen um, practices opening up, being more open to having our sales force come in and, um, and actually have more and more face-to-face trainings. And so that's, uh, that's all been good. I would say that most recently we've seen this thing, I guess um, we, we've heard called a reopening headwind where now that people are actually able to go places, um, a lot of physicians and patients have decided just to take a well-deserved vacation. So slow down there. Again, a different effect of, uh, of the Delta variant on their business, seeing a, a, a quote-unquote vacation from their customers. Um, so we'll see how that trans, uh, uh, what happens over the course of the remainder of this year. All right, well, coming up, we're going to look at a controversial company. The stock was down a lot today when you saw the Bitcoin price fall out today because this company mines Bitcoins. It is controversial, not least of which, uh, having drawn the attention of short sellers across the market, nearly 20% of the shares of the float is sold short. We're going to talk to the CEO, Fred Thiel, of Marathon Digital's CEO, to find out exactly what's going on at this company and its interesting past. But first. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, under Armour and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. And the drill down is brought to you by Indeed. When you, when you pay more for a job site, when you, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed and only pay for quality candidates who meet your must-have requirements. Don't just hope for your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. With Indeed assessments, choose from 135 skills tests to help make sure you're finding applications from people with the needs, the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined and one and a half times more hires than even internal reference 
referrals. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now. Drill Down listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash drill down. That's right, a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash drill down. That's Indeed.com slash drill down. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome back to the drill down. As promised, we are joined right now by the CEO, Marathon Digital, Fred Teal. Fred, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, you, your company's very interesting. I'm very interested in the world of crypto. As our listeners know, I worked uh, for a crypto company for a while, so I know the world a little bit. Um, but what is it that Marathon Digital does? How do you describe the business? Uh, we're one of the largest enterprise-scale Bitcoin miners uh, in North America today. Uh, we mine 100% Bitcoin. Uh, our servers, our miners essentially, are verifying transactions, assembling blocks, and then competing to win those blocks uh, for block rewards uh, against all the yeah, other miners. Let's, let's, you know, crypto better than I, and I know crypto better than some. Um, but let's let's see if we can do a hundred thousand foot view of how uh, Bitcoin mining, and it's it, we can just focus on Bitcoin because that's all you guys do. How does Bitcoin mining work? What what do you need to mine Bitcoin? And how uh, is it? And what? Do you, sorry, let me ask the question differently. What in twenty twenty one do you need to mine Bitcoin? Uh, well, you need a lot of capital for one thing. Uh, so <laughs> Bitcoin mining is a different business than most because there are only currently 900 Bitcoin awarded every day. And it's essentially an arms race. All the people who are mining are competing to essentially assemble blocks and then do a essentially a cryptographic proof, which is a mathematical problem. And if you get the right answer to that proof, then you win the block and you're awarded 6.25 block uh, Bitcoin. So if you think about it, it's kind of imagine um, uh, every miner is kind of like a race car and you're all racing down the track. The more race cars there are on the track, the more people are competing for the same prize. And so what ends up happening is if you want to win more Bitcoin, you have to put more miners to work. To put more miners to work, you have to buy more electricity and you have to buy the miners. And the miners are expensive and electricity is obviously expensive. And then uh, you have to work real hard to make sure that uh, you win those races. And you win the race by having the fastest miner. And so it's a bit like Formula One. Uh, it's and, and there is an obsolescence that comes with that too, right? Where well, there's two sides to obsolescence, right? The newer mining, miner gear, which is a, essentially a, com a computer with a chip, right? And, the, and this, those new powerful chips, those ASICs chips that are kind of written purely so that the semiconductor itself, this isn't like using an Intel semiconductor, the semiconductor that runs your PC uh, or the phone that you may be listening to this podcast on right now for our listeners. It is a specifically programmed chip that is designed to do Bitcoin mining and only Bitcoin mining, right? Correct. Yeah, it's a application-specific integrated circuit. That's what an ASIC is. And it only does SHA-256 algorithms. That's all it does. And those chips are are getting more expensive or they're about the same price, but greater improvement every, every year or so? So about every five years, there's a generation shift where the chips get more power efficient, meaning they generate, think of it this way, um, for anybody who's a gearhead out there, um, it generates the same amount of horsepower for much better fuel efficiency. So 
So fuel being electricity in this case, today, a typical uh, state-of-the-art Bitcoin miner consumes about 29 joules of energy per terahash, which is kind of a Bitcoin mining equivalent of horsepower uh, metric. And um, five years ago, it was about 60 joules per terahash. So you needed twice as much energy to generate the same amount of uh, compute power. And before that, it was twice as much again. And we fully expect within two to five years that you'll see uh, technology available in the marketplace where these miners will operate at 15 joules per terahash potentially. Uh, so. so as you move up that curve of, of, of power with the new machines that you buy, and we'll get to talking about the machines that you've been buying, the miners that you've been buying, you also uh, have the old machines which come off and are basically Turn on the scrap heap, right? Well, the machines that used to mine are, are worthless if they can't keep up with the demand of the longer and longer codes that make the blocks in the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah, they become obsolete in the sense that if, um, you know, they're not as economically efficient. So what you can do, though, is because Bitcoin mining can use electricity anywhere, essentially. There are places in the U.S. today where you have negative pricing on electricity during certain times of the day. So you can take a very inefficient miner, and if you're not paying for the electricity to run it, then you can just let it run. And if you win a Bitcoin every now and again, it's just added benefit. And so, uh, so if we were to if we were to use an automobile metaphor, I won't go Formula One. I'll say if it costs you, I don't know, four dollars a gallon to run your car. You better hope the gas costs less than four dollars a gallon. If your cost, if the gas costs three dollars, then you can pay four dollars a gallon. You know th that works, but otherwise, uh, it doesn't. That's kind of where you are with the cost of energy and extant Bitcoining equipment or old Bitcoining equipment, Bitcoin mining equipment. Um, so, is is Hardin, Montana, one of those places where the energy cost is so low because that's where you've based your miners? Yeah, so the situation with Hardin is very typical in the Bitcoin mining industry. It was a stranded power facility. It was operating only two months of the year. It had no customers taking load off the, um, off the power plant. So it was essentially idle 10 months of the year. So the owner of the power plant had an economic interest in finding a customer who could op essentially consume power uh, from the plant at a consistent level. Because in the power generation business, Consistency means efficiency. And so uh, we're able to essentially consume 100% of the power production of the power plant. So from a power generation perspective, they just turn it on and leave it at full blast and uh, we consume all the electricity. They're not having to vary the consumption, the production with consumption on the grid. In the US today, we generate four terawatts of energy and it's been for years and it's not going up electrical consumption. The mix of consumption is changing, less industrial, more consumer energy. But at the same time, there's all this renewable energy coming on stream. And so you have times of the day where there's more energy produced than consumed. And when that happens, you get what's called negative pricing, where the grid has to deliver that electricity somewhere. And so if you're willing to take it off the grid, they'll take it. It's um, you know, We as consumers expect that there to be electrons coming out of the plug in the wall every time we plug something in. And so the grid has to be able to produce to max capacity. But the vast majority of the time, consumers aren't consuming at max capacity. So there's this kind of supply demand arbitrage, if you would, that happens. 
And Bitcoin miners take advantage of that by being able to be what's called baseload. So we take power directly at the power plant as opposed to off the grid necessarily. What's the source of the power of that, that Harden power plant? The, the Harden power plant is a very clean coal facility. Um, if the measure of particulate coming out of that plant, if dot zero 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 is immeasurable, um, that plant typically operates at dot zero zero one. So barely measurable particulate. It's an extremely clean, um, not just fuel source that we use, but it's scrubbed to be very, very clean on the uh, emission side. Some have dubbed clean coal an oxymoron, but I'll leave that where it is. It's not important for our conversation, I don't think. So um, you guys like to talk about in your in your uh, presentations to investors, mm-hmm. talk about your hash rate. Your hash rate is expressed by X hashes per second or EH slash S, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and your hash rate, which is your essentially your ability, how much you can make, yep. uh, how many how many mathematical strings you can you can pull together at a certain per second as being so much higher than other places. Explain that to me. So um, the total global um, production capacity for Bitcoin today is about 132 to 140 exahash. Uh, An exahash is a million terahash. Um, And we today um, produce 2.2. And by this time next year, we'll be at 13 exahash. So measured in constant terms, you know, we are growing, um, you know, sixfold will be at almost 10% of the global hash rate if you measured it in today's terms. The global hash rate obviously is increasing. Um, so our goal is to grow our capacity to the point where we're maintaining a 5 to 6% kind of market share, if you would, uh, globally in this business. And at 13x a hash, uh, you know, we are going to be one of the larger miners in the world and most probably the largest in North America. And interestingly, you guys keep the Bitcoin that you make. At least that's the way I read your filings. Is that that correct? You say that you've got, you might sell it at some point, but thus far it looks like you keep it. Why? Well, we're big believers in the fact that Bitcoin is going to continue to increase in value. Um, And, you know, we had a drawdown in late May, June, where it went from 60,000 down to 30. We're back up, uh, you know, bouncing around 50,000 right now. And the expectation generally, if you talk to analysts, you talk to experts in the marketplace is, you know, it'll run up to 75 or 90,000 by the end of this year based on supply and demand issues. Because if you think about the market, there are 18.8 million Bitcoin that have been mined and there will only ever be 21 million. There are 900 new Bitcoin released daily. And the miners, generally speaking, don't sell their Bitcoin. They hold it. And so... You have a supply that is getting more and more constrained as demand goes up, and that's what drives the price up. So by not selling our Bitcoin, we're effectively supporting the argument to drive the price higher by limiting supply. Are you able to park it at some of the exchanges? Would that pay you interest on that, which they basically use to loan it to the people to short it? Um, So we do some yield farming, as it's called. Um, We don't park it on an exchange. We actually work very closely with um, NYDIG, who's one of the largest custodians of Bitcoin. They power the back-end Bitcoin systems for all of the big banks primarily. So institutional grade uh, security and all that. Um, And we generate a yield off the Bitcoin there. And then, um, you know, there are a lot of other things we can do with the Bitcoin to generate yield. Um, but we're trying to avoid and minimize counterparty risk. And so you know, we're not doing any of the edgy things like some of the DeFi businesses do. 
Right. But, um, you know, we do generate a yield on, on the Bitcoin. So it, it's such a fascinating business here. And, and, you know, one of the big changes going on, um, I, I alluded to the use of power and, and the, 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 there's, there's two big concepts in, in crypto about how cryptos are created. There's proof of work and proof of stake. Proof of work is doing the, the math that your machines, your mining machines do to prove that, uh, to support the, the world of Bitcoin, to create more Bitcoin and to make the network work consumes a lot of power, which you've pointed out as your sort of biggest input question mark, right? The other way is proof of stake, which is our um, crypto coins where the code is just written and bam, you're done. Um, a place that I used to work, full disclosure, uh, Ripple uh, uses something called XRP. XRP is a proof of stake mm -hmm. where you just have to, the math supports the network. Computers are still used to support the network, to have nodes in the network to prove the network uh, is functioning and to approve uh, transactions and so on. Um, Ethereum is about to go through this change to go from a proof of work to a Ethereum 2.0 proof of stake, particularly the London fork. I won't go down that road. It's unnecessarily confusing. But Ethereum is about to have a big change in the, in the math of the way that the crypto works. And that means that a lot of mining gear that was being used to make Ether will no longer be making Ether. Will that change the price of the mining rigs, the disappearance, I know you don't make ether, but the disappearance of Ethereum mining rigs from the market, will that change what it costs you to buy mining rigs? Um, I think uh, people believe that the shift to ether 2. Ethereum 2.0 is going to happen like a light switch it turns over. Um, it likely will drag on for quite some time. And uh, mining... Uh, will continue to operate. If if you talk to Ethereum miners today, none of them are shutting down their systems. They're just saying, oh no, you know, this is going to continue. It's going to take a long time to transition. And that might just be optimistic, uh, you know, perspectives from their side. But, uh, you know, there are people continue to buy Ethereum mining rigs. It's still quite profitable for those that are in the business to do it. And, um, you know, I personally believe that the transition is going to be slower than what most people think. Um, the challenge with proof of stake versus a proof of work is that in proof of stake, your ability to uh, determine whether a transaction is correct or not is dependent on how much ether you have staked. So how much, think of right. it as a bond. You're basically putting up a bond and saying, I'm going to put- That's an Ethereum 2.0. Yes. I'm going to put up a bond that effectively says, if I make a mistake, if I validate a transaction incorrectly, then I'm going to lose part of my stake. And so the power goes to whoever has the largest stakes. The largest stakeholders will be the exchanges and the banks who have the largest corporate wallets of Ether. And so what ends and up- And there are businesses like Scale that have been launched that also exist in their own way to sort of help staking happen. Exactly. And so what ends up happening is you start creating a centralization of control. So the key difference between proof of work and proof of stake is in proof of work, essentially, you have a highly distributed validation system. In proof of stake, you have a centralized validation system. So you know, the proof of stake is really no different than when you deposit money in your bank and they say, oh, sorry, we can't accept this deposit. Um, you know, something was invalid with it or whatever. You have to live with that. Right. In the Bitcoin mining world, once you transfer something to a wallet, 
uh, it's that transaction is done. There's no central authority who determines anything. And in the Ethereum See, would, 2.0 I'll, world, you do I'll have disagree. a central authority. Just for kicks, I'll disagree. So what I would say is that when you've got when you have proof of of stake, that it doesn't have to be terribly concentrated, and that that Bitcoin mining itself is has some concentration to it. You're talking about being one of the largest Bitcoin miners in the world. Um, one could also look at China and say 50% of all mining happens in China. We'll see if that's the case and if that continues to be the case, uh, given the, the, the saber rattling by the Chinese government. But, you know, there's concentration in the mining of Bitcoin as well that hasn't led to anyone being able to fork Bitcoin in any particular way to favor any miner. But theoretically, that is possible. Well, but it, it Ethereum works differently. You know, if you look at the when the London fork was implemented, a number of miners didn't go. They didn't fork. Right. They kept it's a different technique. They've got to do the mining business goes away. That's part of the, the goal of that. I agree. But so what, but what I ended think up that it's, it's so it's so broadly distributed. The staking is and continues to be broadly distributed. We'll see if it, if it concentrates around too big to fail institutions, but it doesn't seem to be heading that direction. I, uh, but I uh, will we'll we'll have to respectfully disagree. We'll see. We now, will see. Now, just one thing, you know, China has had a huge impact, this prohibition, because essentially China had 50% of the global hash rate in Bitcoin mining. Today, that number is less than 5%. They shut it down. I mean, it literally, it was shut down. And so that is now shifting to other places in the world. And so you're going from a 50% concentration to um, you know, North America, most probably at its biggest point will be maybe twenty percent of the global market. So you're you're going to see very good distribution. But the the ability to do a fifty one percent attack in the world of Bitcoin would require a nation state's treasury department to invest uh, huge amounts of money in mining, and um, even then it would be very difficult. So. Um, yeah, uh, it would, but not impossible. It's it's an interesting theoretical challenge. Uh, certainly China's in a, in a less likely place to do it now than they were two months ago. Absolutely. Let me ask you about your corporate history. I uh, have been around a block or two. And when I look at the corporate history of your firm, it is, um, I'm just, uh, respectfully, it's, it's bizarre. Uh, 2010 Verve Ventures in Nevada becomes American Strategic Minerals in 2011, mining for uranium. And, uh, and, then in just a year later, the company shifts to go into Southern California real estate uh, for a few months and then shifts in October of 2012 to IP licensing. Then five years later, merges with Global Bits or announces a merger to Global Bit, a Bitcoin mining operation, then pulls out of that deal, you know, eight months later. Then a year after that, a year and a half after that, you purchase 6,000 Bitcoin miners through a stock deal with a Vancouver firm or a British Columbia firm, I should say. I don't know where in Vancouver, where, where in BC it was. Um, this is a very bizarre path to end up as a Bitcoin miner, to start off as an actual miner and then to be in the real estate business and then to be in the IP licensing business. What's the story there? Well, um, like many public entities, uh, the company can go through a lot of lives with very different owners and controllers. So the people in control of the company are not the same through the different phases. So the uh, more recent regime, if you would, uh, came into place in 2017. So um, the company had previously gone through a bunch of businesses and effectively uh, gone out of those businesses. Um, and, uh, you know, Marathon Patent Group, which was its prior iteration before right. becoming uh, Marathon Digital Holdings, was essentially a patent troll that went and acquired a series of patents, uh, some very valuable patents, um, one which is essentially a voice 
control patent, which is a core part of Siri and Alexa. And actually successfully got Apple to pay a license for that um, patent, I believe. And um, then the Alice decision happened uh, in the Supreme Court, which essentially invalidated a lot of software patents. And so when uh, the company went to go uh, litigate that patent with other parties, uh, essentially it became hugely expensive and the company uh, ran into financial difficulties. Um, and so they had to figure out something new to do. They were recapital recapitalized by a group who essentially took control that resulted in Marathon be going into the mining business. So like many public companies, you know, they go through multiple lives, um, especially in the okay. micro cap world where, you know, Marathon operated previously. It also looks like you've gone through many CFOs. You've had at least, it looked to me, three chief financial officers since 2018. Is that right? Um, I think two, yes, most probably three. So I joined the board in April of 2018. Uh, we did a shift then. Um, and then, um, actually only two since 2018. So, yeah, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, I, I'm trying to imagine what that was like as if Bitcoin isn't volatile enough to have a company whose, whose purpose shifts and then CFO shifts, but that, that makes perfect sense. Um, and, uh, as, as you move forward with the price of Bitcoin, you know, you guys say in your, in your SEC filings, you quote the. Um, kind of valuation expectation at that time. So, you know, at, at this moment, I think of some phrase to that, that Bitcoin's changing at 53,000, trading at $53,000. So at 53,000 times, whatever, here's how our business looks. Mm -hmm. And that seemed kind of aggressive to me, given the volatility in Bitcoin. It wasn't, you know, even an oil company would put a deck saying, if oil's at this price, we'll do that. If oil's at that price, we'll do that. Um, you guys are, were kind of pinning your hopes on a $53,000 price for Bitcoin. And yet your cost, uh, uh, your blended mining cost is substantially below that. Yeah. So our, uh, our cost to mine in Bitcoin is about $5,600 currently. Um, and we, you know, if you look at the information we produce, we're constantly talking about how many Bitcoin we're producing because of the price volatility. Um, Bitcoin is the one constant metric you can use to look at our revenue generation. But because we don't sell the Bitcoin, we recognize revenue based on uh, market price uh, for, you know, because we're awarded, we earn our Bitcoin effectively. And so that's how we recognize revenue. Um, we don't sell the Bitcoin, so we're not liquidating it. But the price of Bitcoin, essentially, we have to mark uh, to uh, market for some of our holdings, some of our holdings we have to treat as intangibles and impair. And then our revenues are measured based in based on the price of Bitcoin every month. And so as that price goes up and down, obviously, the revenue number uh, varies, but the Bitcoin production, which is driven by our hash rate, uh, is the one kind of constant. So that's the number we're constantly publishing every month to the public to provide full transparency about what our production numbers are and what our revenues are. Well, it's certainly an interesting company, and we will uh, absolutely keep an eye on that, um, what you guys are doing over time and how you guys are developing the business, uh, because it's 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 one everyone's watching, and uh, it's you're in the middle of a lot of different uh, exciting things going on. We're going to have one number that illustrates that even further tells you just how well and how big Voyer, uh, Marathon Digital's holdings actually are when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot -E com. And we hope you listen to the drill down every day. Make it a part of your regular routine 
that gets uh, easier if you click the subscribe button and follow us. That way you can download every show and it'll be with you whenever you're, I don't know, walking the dog, doing the dishes, going to work, going home from work, in the shower. Listen to Drill Down every day. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. back with the drill down bite that one number that tells us a whole lot well marathon as of september 2nd said they were holding here's that number 6695 bitcoin including uh, about 4800 that they purchased uh for about $31,000 but uh 6695,000 6, bitcoin isaac would be worth uh, at $50,000 per bitcoin which is about where bitcoin is as we record this $335 million. Wow. So not that much. Something. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Bitcoin. All right, you've been listening to the Drill Down Podcast. We do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster's our executive producer, Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down is not fueled by Bitcoin. It's fueled <laughs> by coffee. If only... And a little bit of red wine when the yeah. occasion strikes us. But the Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.